Welcome to the Future of Science podcast. In this episode, we talk to Josh Nicholson, founder of Sight. In this conversation, we dove deep into metrics. Which stats should you optimize for to progress in your career as a scientist? And how can this inevitable culture of optimizing for one-dimensional metrics hurt the pursuit of truth? Josh started Sight, a tool that helps researchers make sense of the literature by differentiating between supporting and contrasting citations of a paper versus just surfacing the raw citation count. He explained how contextualized citation counts and richer indices like Sight can create a more positive, constructive optimization game. We also talked about the culture of innovation in the scientific ecosystem that is supposed to be the cradle of new ideas. Does this ecosystem really encourage innovative, new, and maybe even controversial ideas? And what's it like trying to change the legacy system as a new startup that doesn't yet have any street cred? Stay tuned to find out. Josh, you're kind of an expert in metrics, metrics and science. So you built a company called Sight, and it's about citation counts and similar things. So today I kind of want to talk about metrics, the metrics that we currently have and why they may be suboptimal and what we can do to change them. So like the state of metrics right now is basically academic scientists kind of depend on good stats to progress in their careers. And the best stats they can get is a large number of publications, a large number of citations of these publications, and then a high impact factor of the journals in which these publications appear, right? And so the impact factor is kind of based on how many citations do articles in general tend to get in these journals. So this strong dependence on these like quantitative metrics has been criticized a lot. But Josh, I would like to ask you, like, can you still mend the case for these metrics? Why are they helpful? Why do we have them and why do we need them? Yeah, so so thanks for that. And it's it's funny to hear myself described as, you know, an expert on metrics. Uh, and so, <laughs> you know, cite started because, uh, you know, I, I think metrics are important. I, I think they're imperfect in many ways, uh, and, and we're just trying to improve them, right? And so I, I think there's a couple approaches. One is to be heavily metric focused and say, this is how we're going to measure science and scientists. The other is to completely try to avoid them and say, these metrics are bad. Sorry for the sirens in the back. These metrics are bad. Um, dude, should we start over again? <laughs> <laughs> No, this is New York, dude. The timing of this. Authentic. Uh, soon there'll be jackhammers and someone screaming at me. <laughs> yeah, so so I, I don't love metrics, but I don't think they're going away. And I think all the approaches to try and like, you know, advocate them away and sign these pledges that we shouldn't use them are not working, right? And so Sight was trying to take a practical approach and say, hey, metrics are not great, but they are useful for some things because of course, you can't read everything in the world, you know, fully. It's just totally impractical. And so what we're trying to do is, is meet somewhere in the middle where it's, you know, not all metrics or not all kind of narrative, but somewhere in between where we can improve metrics that we have, recognizing that they'll always be imperfect and recognizing that we'll always need to kind of improve them. Um, and so site was, you know, primarily in response to growing concerns around reproducibility uh, and the idea was to say, you know, not all citations are the same. Maybe there's some citations that present supporting evidence or some citations that present competing evidence. Wouldn't it be great if you could see that? And so it was a pretty simple idea, uh, you know, based on the fact that I knew certain papers that were cited because they were being directly refuted. But I wouldn't know that if I left outside. And, and you know, you're right. Today, we are rewarded for being published in certain journals, publishing a lot, getting a lot of citations. And I think the outcome of that, you know, either indirectly or directly, is that people cut corners, right? They're, they're producing these nice narratives to pitch to editors, to sell to reviewers, more or less, um, so that they can get into these highly selective journals, right? And it's, it's hard to admit or argue against, I should say, a publication in Nature is not good for your career, right? You know, I had a publication in Nature, and this immediately like, started to win me prizes as a grad student. Yeah, exactly. And, and yeah, I, I think it's being kind of realistic with, with metric. But it's interesting that you mentioned this, like um, being published in Nature gets you further in your career because there's also been this study um, from Bayer where they looked at the reproducibility and you cited the study during your seminar. That's why I looked at it. And it's super interesting. So they basically, as a pharma company, they do these like validation studies on findings from the literature where they're like, oh, we might be investing like millions of dollars into pursuing this. So let's do a reproducibility check first. 
And so they actually checked um, like for reproducibility of these findings they find in the literature. And it was kind of shocking. So they found that like, I think two out of three of the replication attempts actually were unsuccessful. They're not able to replicate two out of three findings in the literature, which is crazy. And what they also found was that that reproducibility did not correlate at all with journal impact factors. So it did not matter if that study was published in Nature um, for the validity of this study. So then I guess my question is, like, what? why do we use this as a metric? Like, how can that be helpful if it does not tell me anything about the quality of this paper that I'm reading? Yeah, I mean, I think this is a, a large issue, right? And in research in general, right, we are very tradition-bound, right? If you go to these old universities, that's better than going to one that's 20 years old, right? And, and so we we love our traditions. Harvard is great because it's, you know, this old prestigious university, similar for, for nature, right? And, and so I think there has been amazing breakthroughs published in these journals over time. There's also been some really funny reports if you go back a couple of decades and, and you'll think, how did this ever make that in there? And so we need <laughs> kind of these shorthand heuristics or measures to look at something and have some way of, you know, having some assessment. Um, and I think, you know, journal brand name, whether we like it or not, is one of those, right? And so mm -hmm. it is highly selective to get in there. Generally, these papers are making big claims, but you're right, they can be quite wrong if you retest it. And I think that's kind of the thing that we're trying to address is it's nice to have nice stories that look amazing, produce this nice narrative, can be digested by the public. But if it's wrong, right, we could be making, you know, wildly... Uh, wrong decisions based on health, uh, based on, you know, large amounts of money. Um, and then that affects everyone else's research because it's not done in a vacuum. And so I, I think, again, you kind of have to pair the fact with like nature as a brand is here. Uh, you can't just wish it away. Uh, you can try and launch something with a more prestigious band, but they have a 200 year, you know, track record of publishing science. And, and I, I think we need to go beyond that and, and try to see, okay, how has this been cited? How has it been mentioned? And then, you know, how has it also been discussed, maybe even outside of publications? Because I think, I, I think we're all trying to coalesce around this idea of like, we want the truth, right? But we also need to have quick ways of understanding, like, has this been validated? Has this not? Yeah, it's, it's interesting, because it's kind of like a balancing act between trying to, like, get to this level of abstraction of being able to put something into a number that I can understand quickly that like helps me navigate the vast amount of information that is the publication space of research. And then like not having, because like as soon as you make anything a metric, it starts being gamed, right? So these metrics that we talked about, they kind of led to this publish no matter what culture, this like publish or perish. And um, like, I'm curious, Philip, also, what's your experience been like having worked in academia, having done research and having published a lot? Like, how do you feel your work has been affected by this super strong focus on metrics like this? And it has made a huge impact, uh, both in terms of what I focused on as a scientist. So I remember at the beginning of uh, of my career, there uh, there was still a little bit of ambiguity about how tenure would be evaluated. And at some point, the university, like they they introduced new rules that uh, were very quantitative and that uh, basically set very clear targets on having to have a certain number of high impact publications and and certain fields and outlets. And that immediately changed the incentives for everybody in the department. And it immediately meant that we had to reshuffle our research portfolio, throw out some projects, think of ones that could actually make it into these big, uh, these high impact journals. And then ultimately, when the time came that, uh, that we actually did publish in science and in nature, it was a total game changer, of course, like, mm. uh, uh, both on a personal level, uh, but also for, um, for everybody who was working in the team, just being published in one of these big journals also means that you're getting a lot of eyeballs, right? So they're, they're, they're basically trying to make a prediction about what is likely to be driving that field in the future. And uh, you, you can't really tell because the future isn't there yet. So it's really their job to make that prediction. And journals like Science and Nature, they have such a big brand name because they've been pretty good at receiving the things that, that actually mattered in the end and making these bets. 
Right. Whether the these bets actually resulted in science that is replicable is a totally different <laughs> question. Yeah. Hey, hope you're enjoying this episode so far. You can watch all previous Future of Science seminars on our DSI Foundation YouTube channel or sign up to future seminars at dsifoundation.org slash seminars. If you'd like to support the DSI Foundation, you can best do that by subscribing to this podcast, sharing it with friends, or making a donation at dsifoundation.org slash donate. All links in the description. But they definitely managed to uh, uh, like create attention uh, yeah. for, for the stuff and to pick stuff that, that, uh, that naturally will get the attention of the community. It's interesting you say that, though, like that you kind of felt that, okay, now I need to publish in nature. So let's look at my research plans and change them so that I can actually get published in nature and like, let me do different studies or whatever, right? That's wild. It, it was even crazier than that, because in, in our case, the incentives were very specific. They wanted us to publish in top econ journals. And I was just at the beginning of, of branching out of econ and like doing behavioral genetics. And it was just pretty clear that uh, behavioral genetics would not be published in uh, in top econ journals, right? Hmm. So uh, I actually needed to make a double bet. So I needed to make uh, sure that the stuff that I'm working on actually ends up in a very, very high impact journal. And I needed to have a story why I chose not to publish in economics and still be considered for tenure in an econ department. <laughs> yeah, that's crazy. Like, and, and that just shows how metrics have such a big impact. And I guess the what it means is also like it can have a very good impact, right? Like if the metric is chosen and designed in a way that actually incentivizes good work and replicable and truthful work, the production of truthful findings, right? Then that would be awesome. Because if you optimized your career and your research towards finding truth, that's kind of what you should be doing anyways, right? Yeah. So I guess it's not necessarily a matter of like getting rid of uh, metrics, as you said, Josh. It's about design, designing metrics and changing them in a way that actually favors good uh, work, good practice and truthful findings. So I guess that kind of leads us to like your journey towards building site. And so Josh, you published this really interesting paper in 2014 where you proposed the R factor. So tell us about this metric and how you came up with it and how it is better or would be better than what we're currently doing with citations. Yeah. So the R factor was, as the name suggests, in direct response to, to growing concerns around reproducibility, right? And so you know, more citations doesn't necessarily mean it's more right, right? Mm -hmm. and, and so we wanted to say, wouldn't it be great, as, as you just said, to reward people for maybe not the most splashy uh, or, or flashy work, but, you know, work that had been reproduced by others. Um, and so we came up with this pretty simple ratio that said, let's design a way that allows you to see if a paper has been tested and out of how many times it's been t tested, and I mean tested broadly, not doing identical experiments, but you know this kind of triangulation approach of just overall looking at the same claims or concepts, wouldn't it be great to look at out of those co testing uh, papers, how many of them agreed with it or how many of them disagreed with it, right? And, and that's based not just on their opinions, but based on uh, evidence and analyses. And so we knew certain papers within our field that had 300 plus citations, came out of cell, came out of MIT, but I knew amongst those 300 citations, four of them directly and more stringently in quote unquote, less than journals refuted it, right? And, and so the idea was, we should be able to have this way of looking at these testing citations easier, right? Because going through 300 citations manually is just totally impractical. It'd take hours, if not days, or, or maybe even weeks. Um, and so that's kind of the initial thought around the R factor was, Let's design a metric that incentivizes and rewards reproducibility and makes it easy to see how, in general, it's been tested by others, whether that's, you know, you looking at something in, in mice and me looking at something in yeast and Philip looking at something uh, in humans. And so that's the gist of it. Yeah, that's interesting because it does do that. Like it does do what you said metrics should be doing. It does make the entire space of all the publications that are related to this, it makes it much more navigable for me. Like it's easier to understand, oh, it's been cited a lot, but it's also been cited in a contrasting way or like people have different opinions around it. So it does help me. It gives me a lot more context on uh, what it is that this finding does. Um, so that's really cool. And Basically, the R factor, um, I think you mentioned during your seminar, kind of led to what now is site, right? So does site do exactly that? What does site do and what's the relation between the R factor and site? 
Yeah, so the R factor was, yes, kind of the idea behind Sight. And I would say it's evolved and changed a bit since then. And so Sight is uh, showing the context of citations. And that can help with reproducibility. It can also just help with, you know, information literacy and understanding topics. And so it's not just that we have this metric around reproducibility. In fact, we don't have the R factor by name anywhere on Sight. We did implement the R factor initially in early prototypes and we went to go show it to researchers and almost immediately all they saw was this metric, right? And, and they got scared and said, oh, I'm going to be judged on this new metric and all this. And so we kind of dropped back and said, you can still have this utility of seeing how a paper, a researcher, or a topic has been cited and if it's been supported or challenged without a single number, right? And, and I think we, we dropped that kind of single number to make it easy for, for humans to look at, at research papers and, and get this contrasting or competing information and letting them decide upon that. We still have what we call the site index, which is essentially the R factor, but that's applied at the journal level um, and at the university level and then dashboard level. And I think there it's, it's a bit safer because we're trying to push back a little bit behind the impact factor, right? And, and so, um, you know, the impact factor, as you mentioned, is looking at quantity, right? More is better in, in terms of citations, in terms of kind of all metrics, really, that we have today. And that's not necessarily the best way to look at things. And so if you look at the R factor and compare it to the uh, impact factor or the site index and compare it to the impact factor, you'll see that there's not a strong relationship. Um, and then what is interesting is if you break this down by different disciplines, you will see that there's more levels of agreement in certain fields and more levels of debate in others. And so math mm -hmm. has a lot of supporting citations, not a ton of contrasting citations, which I think is reflective of the nature of math, also how mathematicians write. And then these other sciences, social science and whatnot, there'll be more debate. And that's not that debate is a bad thing, right? We want to encourage more, and we actually hope that by making contrasting citations more visible, more people will take the time to actually challenge work. Because right now, it's, it, it's still as slow, time-consuming to challenge anything, and then it's buried, right? And, and so by bringing it up to the level of the paper or you know citations in general hopefully we encourage you know more critical debate i'm kind of shocked it's interesting that you mentioned that like researchers were not happy <laughs> when you introduced a specific number that kind of showed how replicable or like how accepted their claims were like what does that say about your work when you don't want a number attached to it that kind of identifies um, like the, the ratio between confirming and contrasting citations of your work. It's kind of, yeah, a bad sign if you don't want that attached to your work. This is, I think, something that's really interesting at Sight. So when most people first hear about Sight, they search themselves. Almost nine times out of 10, they go search themselves. Have you, Philip? <laughs> no, I haven't. <laughs> Not yet. <laughs> and then they might love us or hate us, right? And, and it's funny because I did the same thing, right? You know, I stopped tracking my citations so crucially and then, you know, built site and was like, whoa, I have a supporting citation. And, you know, I even joked about that at the time on Twitter. And someone's like, Josh, you've developed this whole system just to make yourself kind of feel better. And so <laughs> the people will search themselves, right? And if they see that they're receiving supporting citations, then of course the method is working um, because, you know, it's, it's building up their ego. It's, it's making their work look better. If they see anyone challenging their work, they start to kind of like, you know, bend over and make these, these weird arguments. It's like, oh, that one's not contrasting me. It's just different to me. I'm like, okay, What is different versus contrasting? <laughs> you know, I, I think it's, to me, a bad sign if someone comes to us and says, no one's ever, ever challenged our work, right? Because mm -hmm. that means they themselves have never challenged their work. So they're never right. kind of changing their minds. They're never going back and saying, we revisited this. It's no longer right. They're just publishing what I like to call our trophies, right? Here is my paper. This is a trophy I put on my mantle. I will defend it at all costs, you know, in terms of peer review, in terms of grants, uh, et cetera. And so, Anecdotally, the researchers that I trust the most are those with self-contrasting citations, right? They are contrasting their previous work, um, and they're doing that in a way that, you know, they didn't know Cite was going to come along, but they're doing that in a way because that's how they share their findings more, more transparently. Um, and so, yeah, it's very interesting to kind of see people's reactions to, to Cite and, and the concept of supporting citations or contrasting citations. Another kind of thing around that is, you know, initially it was, supporting and refuting, right? And so even the language you use around this matters a lot. And refuting, there was a big red X and people are like, oh my God, this is too inflammatory. <laughs> and so, you know, 
contrasting with a blue question mark, like is a bit more neutral. We're not trying to say you're a bad researcher, you should get out of here. Really, we're trying to surface debates. Um, and I think it's it's challenging because people don't necessarily want to have their, their work kind of debated in the open. I mean, they should in theory, but, but uh, yeah. One of the things that I'm wondering about is how does um, the R factor or, or site deal with papers that just look at a lot of different hypotheses and they just throw a lot of, uh, you know, different types of evidence and, and empirical analysis at the reader. So th there, the background of this question is, of course, that there has been a trend in the last couple of years that in order to make it into the really high impact journals, uh, you just put more and more stuff into one paper, right? And you often end up with papers that have a broad theme, but are actually testing like 10, maybe 100, maybe a thousand different hypotheses and are presenting all different sorts of uh, analysis on all of them. So how, how do you actually calculate an R factor or a side score for a paper that is not just on one particular hypothesis? Yeah, that, that's a great question. And so we are capturing citation statements from papers, right? And so if I'm citing your paper, I can cite your paper in one place. I can also cite it in 10 different places. I can mention you in the introduction section. I can mention you in the method section. I can mention you in the results section. There's different reasons that I would cite your paper or many papers throughout the article. And so we capture these different uh, citation statements. And it's interesting because a paper can both support and contrast another one. Um, and I think that granularity is really important. With that said, right, we are only looking at the citation statements. And so it's not perfect, right? There are papers that disagree with one another that do it outside of the citation statement, do it indirectly, um, and that's hard to capture. And so I think, you know, we're starting in a way that is quote unquote simple, although it's very complex. And then I think, you know, over time it will continue to kind of improve. A paper might contradict another paper's claim without ever citing it. And then that wouldn't be like reflected in the score, for example. Yeah, so that's a really big challenge, right? Uh, people will not cite papers, you know, to disagree with them. They just won't cite them at all, right? And then of course we're not capturing right. it, right? We can't be like this paper disagrees with this other paper and we just magically know this, this other paper. Um, and so if you look at the representation of contrasting citations in our database, they're a minority, a tiny minority, like 0.6% of all yeah. citations are contrasting because it's not, you don't get rewarded for calling out your colleagues. If anything, you hurt yourself, right? I mean, it's like the, there is a pretty good chance if, if you make a, a big case that, you know, XYZ was wrong and you're showing why, that the editor is going to send it to XYZ and they're going to review your paper and they're going to rip it apart. <laughs> Obviously, right? So, <laughs> so for strategic considerations, like it, it does make sense that, that people are very careful with um, with making strong contrasting statements in their papers. Yeah, it's weird because like science and scientific publishing should be the place to actually have these debates and they should not be about who said what, but like what is being claimed and debated like it should be a discussion of ideas but it is a lot about like you know identity and like my personal like my personal stance and my reputation and I throw it all behind my claim instead of just putting an idea out there and having the research community debate it um but yeah it's, it's kind of funny how like even researchers and like you know the smartest people we have they're still human they're still Like it, it, it still feels um, uncomfortable, um, like attacking somebody else's opinion, and like we're still looking for this harmonic agreement. <laughs> like, let's just all agree, and if we don't, I, I won't say it to your face, but like, I'll just not cite you <laughs> and just make my own claims. It's kind of funny um, that researchers cannot transcend that human nature. <laughs> So that that actually brings up a, a related question. So the side score that that you're that you're calculating, like how accurate is it? Like how accurate is it for for confirmatory citations, for contrasting citations? Where are we there? Yeah. So it was very challenging to to do it right, and so to look at you know millions, well actually at this point billions uh, of you know different sentences and see okay, this scientist in this field is supporting it, this scientist in this field is supporting it this way, you have to develop this system that, that can do it reliably, right? Because, you know, a billion citation statements is just too much for humans to, to annotate. And so 
we developed this, you know, entirely manually where I would go read hundreds of papers and say, okay, these authors are citing this paper and they're presenting supporting evidence or competing evidence to the claim. We did that manually on about 40,000 different citation statements where at least two different experts, MDs or PhDs on the team, had to agree that, yes, they're citing this paper and they're presenting supporting or contrasting evidence to it. That was our training data or is our training data uh, that goes into feeding this deep learning model that can do this at scale. Um, it's a very challenging problem, though, because it's very unbalanced, right? Contrasting citations are very rare. Supporting citation statements are also quite rare. They're only about, you know, five and a half percent of all citations. And so when we first started, we thought, okay, maybe we can't even do this, right? Like it was just not good at all. The precision was like 20% uh, because it was so unbalanced. And I think, you know, people have long thought of this idea and even attempted to do it, but I think they've failed for a couple of reasons. One is licensing, but the second is, I think, technology, right? The technology just wasn't there. And so Cybert and these deep learning models didn't always exist. They do now, right? And so we've utilized these advances in deep learning and machine learning to extract out and then classify citation statements at scale. Um, and we tried all these different deep learning models. And if you look at the graph of like precision and recall, you go from, okay, this is not going to work. Okay, maybe it's going to work. Okay, this is going to be too expensive to, okay, it's working, right? And, and I think site nowadays gets a lot less complaints about accuracy. Uh, that was one of the initial complaints when we first you know, launched the prototype uh, because it's quite good. Um, and so good in our mind is that it's you know 85% of the time it's right on contrasting citations. Uh, and then about 80%, you know, on supporting. That's pretty good. It wasn't easy. You know, it took years to kind of build up this training data set. Um, and we wait a bit more for, for precision over recall. So we might miss some, uh, but we're pretty confident in, in making that, you know, assessment. I'm curious, you mentioned uh, Cybert. So Cybert is a large language model that has been trained exclusively on academic content, I believe. Like it's just trained on um, like scientific publications rather than just the entire internet, like GPT, for example. Is Cybert the base model that you guys are using? Have you trained your own model or which one are you using? Yeah, so, well, we're doing a lot, right? So it depends upon which use case. So we, we use uh, an open source tool called Grobid uh, to extract out this information. This is based on Java, right? So this is not utilizing these, these uh, sophisticated advances in deep learning, but it's good enough, right? And it, it's, it's like 21 different machine learning models. For the classification task of looking at the text and trying to say this is supporting or contrasting citation statement, we tried Elmo, we tried Cybert, we tried a mixture of all these different things. And again, it was just really trying to optimize for the best you know, F-score, which, which looks at recall and precision. We haven't done anything beyond that, the training data is really the unique thing that we're applying to that because, you know, we spent years building up this training data in a very careful way. Um, because if you feed it wrong information and you don't have a good way of testing this against some holdout set, you know, you can get all kinds of problems. In addition to that, though, again, the world continues to kind of evolve with large language models and generative text. And so we now are utilizing uh, ChatGPT's API to make it easy for kind of task-based uh, uh, questions or, or um, things that researchers need to do. Um, and so the way that this works is to call ChatGPT's API, allows a researcher to ask a question, to write a paragraph, to find a source, kind of almost any task you can think about, takes the power of ChatGPT, but then what is it, it's doing is validating that against the scholarly literature. And, you know, we have been very focused on producing these next generation citations for almost five years. And around, you know, along comes ChatGPT. And what is the biggest like need out of some of this? Citations, right? A way to trust and validate this output. And so that's exactly what we're doing now and focusing on uh, is, is making it easy to utilize some of the best of ChatGPT and then, you know, trying to take the best of sight and say, hey, if you bring these together, you can get a very powerful system that allows you to get a uh, answer based on almost any topic, validated against the, the research. Yeah, that's that's huge. Because I mean, like ChatGPT, honestly, I use it a lot, maybe too much. And like the thing <laughs> is, like I, I stopped because the UI is so much better. The UX is so much better. I stopped Googling for things. First, I asked ChatGPT because it just gives me <laughs> the exact answer that I'm looking for. I don't have to go to different websites, blah, blah, blah. But 
it may be hallucinating. Like I, there are cases where it hallucinates and it's always hard to tell, like, is this the truth? Like you always have to fact check it basically. So that's really awesome. Like being able to kind of ask a question and then get the answer with a reference to an actually validated resource that where that claim is coming from. So that's, uh, that's super interesting. But yeah, one, one thing, for example, like with ChatGPT, I, I use it a lot. And at some point I realized it like knows context from a different com conversation. Like you always start a new chat with ChatGPT, but like it referred back to something I told it at a later point. And I was like, wait, 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 wait. Do you know everything about me now? Because you have a memory from all these chats. So I asked it and I asked it like, what do you know about me? And, or how would you describe me to a different person? And gave me like a description of my personality. And I'm like, holy shit. And then I asked my friend um, to like ask his model too, to describe him. And his model was like, oh, I do not have context from your old conversations. I'm like, wait, 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 has mine become sentient? Like what's wrong? And I would just like to know, like, where did it get that information from? And it doesn't tell me. And I'm scared, honestly, I'm scared. So uh, that's a really great uh, use case. I'm glad you guys are building this. Do you think that there is a scientific literature on Carla Ostmann? Oh, there should be probably <laughs> like, a, like a, a Freudian case study. Like what's wrong with this person? <laughs> um, okay. But um, one other thing that I thought was interesting, you mentioned like people have been trying to build this and now the technological advances in deep learning and machine learning have kind of made this whole thing possible. Um, so this opens up an interesting topic of innovation in science and so basically, like we, we think of science as the cutting edge, right? This is where knowledge comes from. This is where new stuff is being developed. So it should kind of be the nursing ground for innovation. But I'm kind of getting the feeling it might not be the ideal ecosystem, actually, for innovation. So for example, uh, you published your proposal for the R factor like almost 10 years ago, right? And even the idea for this comes from the 60s. So Eugene Garfield, that's the guy who came up with citation counts in the first place. Just shortly after that, he like had this publication that you also um, showed us in your seminar where he's suggesting a contextualized citation metric, basically. This is kind of what cite is. But so that was in the 60s. And now we're in 2023. And only now you guys are seeing significant traction, yes, enabled by technology. And by the way, congrats on reaching 900 million uh, academic citations on site, I believe. More now, 1.3 billion. Yeah. Wow, yeah. that's amazing. Whoa. Hell yeah, exactly. So that's really great. However, it did take a lot of time. So I'm wondering, has it only been the tech side that's been missing? Is it only due to enablement by technology? Or what is your experience with how science currently functions and whether it does support and welcome innovations in the space? Yeah, so I, I think it takes persistence, right? And it takes you doing a lot of things that are, are boring, right? And so to me, there are probably dozens of potential companies and ideas in archive but writing a paper, as I did, is nowhere near enough, right? It, it's really challenging. It's easy to almost have this idea. I shouldn't say easy. That's one of the easier parts uh, is having the idea. But then bringing that idea to fruition will take a lot of time, a lot of effort, money. You have to somehow, you know, support these ideas and maybe support yourself. Um, and so all those require a lot of different hoops or challenges to be met, right? It's, it's mm -hmm. not enough to just have Cybert. You need someone that knows how to train cyber, right? Okay, well, if you need to find someone that's training it, they're probably pretty skilled. Maybe you need to pay them, right? You need to pay for hosting costs. You need to pay for this. And so there are a lot of challenges, I think, to going from idea to concept to something that exists for years. Um, and I think the biggest kind of trait that you need most is just to, to, to persist at it, right? I'm going to work on this and this is going to take me five, 10 years. Um, but I think it's so interesting and I think it's so worthwhile that I will try to solve all these challenges fun from fundraising technology to people. People is really hard, right? You, we all might be best friends writing this paper, but then going through, you know, s stresses and, and trials and tribulations of building a company can really kind of test some of those uh, relationships. And I think if you look at a lot of startups, historically, they fail for a lot of, you know, founders breaking up, someone wants to go do something else after four or five years. Um, and so I think it's, it's not just technology by any means. If anything, that's probably the easiest part. Uh, you know, I think, you know, marketing, sales, UX, all these things 
matter a ton. Um, and it's it's a fun puzzle if you look at it from that perspective to try to figure it out. But it's it's certainly a challenging puzzle. Yeah, I'm. I mean, I, I find it interesting that you say ideas. I mean, uh, you kind of took it back, but you did say ideas are easy to have. I'm kind of. I, I kind of want to fight back on the idea, like even in the way that science currently functions, even if we take out building the startup part, that's obviously much harder than publishing your idea. But even if your idea and your paper, your claim, whatever you want to announce to the to your peers in form of a publication, if that like strongly contradicts the current status quo of any field that might be really hard to even get published, right? Like uh, you, you actually wrote a paper on this in uh, 2011. It's called Conform and Be Funded. And it kind of talks about how those uh, researchers who kind of have kind of agree with the status quo are kind of better funded. And that might be due to funding coming from or depending on peer review and peer review kind of reading, uh, leading to consensus and like converging ideas versus di diverging ideas. So I'm curious, you both having been in academia and actually just done doing research, um, how, what's your perception of how the science space even welcomes just like keeping away like new technologies, new startups, whatever, but just like publishing a new idea that kind of fights back on the status quo in a given field. Is that something that is easy to do or is it actually harder than publishing something that agrees with what, what's come before? I think it's quite challenging, right? And if you look at the history of science, and I think a lot of scientists don't ever look at the history of science, right? Most of these breakthrough ideas came despite funding mechanisms, despite publishing mechanisms. And, you know, these people were really not living good lives, right? You know, but they're iconoclasts and, and pushing forward with a lot of this. And, and so I think that continues to this day, right? To go out and challenge, uh, you know, any kind of idea in any field uh, will get pushback, right? People have made their careers, they've made their publication on record. If I go out and say you're wrong, even if I'm 100% right, like naturally you're going to defend upon this. And so I, I, I think, you know, I, I love kind of out their ideas, if you will, right? I, I think for a healthy ecosystem of research, you need a lot of different ideas. You need some people that are, are wrong, but at least willing to go out there and try something different. And, and so, you know, there's this one journal that I've seen recently, and I don't know how much traction it has, but I think it's, it's the Journal of Controversial Ideas or, or Opinions, something like this. This to me is really fascinating because it is taking people's names off the paper. So these are legitimate researchers mm. publishing I was just thinking about that, yeah. pretty controversial ideas and not putting their name to it. Uh, someone is vetting them. Uh, and I think that's because they can be more free, right? Mm -hmm. Like you can say mm -hmm. these things without having that, that pushback. Um, yeah. And I think that's really fascinating because right now, you know, you can have a career kind of ending paper if you, you say the wrong thing. And I, I think exactly. that's... Yeah, I mean, there, there's definitely uh, the, the Kuhnian paradigms in, in science, right? And uh, and very often people are also being put into mental buckets, right? So you're you're part of that camp or you're part mm. of this camp. And there is... What's, what's uh, a Kuhnian paradigm, Philip? Well, the, there is this idea that uh, in science, um, we, we sort of have paradigms or, or schools of thoughts of main ideas in a particular field. Uh, that are basically attached to the to the people that came up with it and that mm. keep defending it, and okay. uh, to basically, yeah, change the paradigm. You very often need to get rid of the people that originally like made it popular. Yeah, so this is sort of like this this change of, of paradigms often takes like generations. <laughs> so that's that's huge. science advances one funeral at a time, right? This is like a, a commonly accepted thing <laughs> yeah. because. You know, the people that have the most power are, you know, generally kind of the, you know, holding all onto this power, right? Like people are not going out, <laughs> spending 30 years defining this oncogene and then saying, ah, it's wrong. You know, yeah. they're going to kind of defend it till the end. Yeah. It kind of feels like the, the theme I'm seeing throughout your answers is kind of this resistance to new and controversial ideas seems to be linked to ideas and claims being so strongly connected to somebody's identity and reputation. It feels like if that link wasn't there, there would be a much freer exchange of ideas and more openness to challenging 
ideas. Yeah, this is one thing that we're really interested in cite, right? So so right now, you know, as I mentioned, there's only 0.6% of citations are contrasting, right? That doesn't mean that Philip knows some papers that he, you know, knows to be wrong, he might not have published against them. And so what we kind of want to do, and this is a longer term thought is to have our classification system and our deep learning kind of prime the pump for humans to contribute in more information. And the idea kind of borrows from Glassdoor, right? Glassdoor is this, this website that allows you to write reviews on the companies that you work for. And to write these reviews or to see these reviews, you have to contribute information in. And so I've always thought it would be interesting if there's some way that we could validate people as a researcher, remove their name, and then allow them to kind of contrast papers with evidence or support papers with evidence in, a, in an easier way, almost in what we'd call like a, a site with a S. Uh, and so I don't know if we'll get there, but I think that would, to be critical, would, would need to kind of remove people's names. And, and there's precedent for this. There's this website called PubPeer. PubPeer is a quote unquote online journal club. It allows anyone to write a comment on any paper there is. Um, and if you talk to the founders, if you watch any of their talks, they used to collect people's names and the growth of comments was flat and low. As soon as they removed that and allowed people to write comments uh, under pseudonyms, it skyrocketed. And now it's a big place where people call out fraud. Um, and you know, I think it's, it's found a lot of fraudulent papers. It's led to retractions. It's also led to lawsuits though, because again, if you're challenging someone and they're making a lot of money on this in terms of grants or their, their position, they might sue you, right? So again, like, this is a, a complex and tricky thing to, to openly challenge things. That's fascinating. Okay. Um, yeah, that's that's wild. I, I feel like maybe, yeah, we should be taking our names off papers. Um, <laughs> another thing uh, that I'm interested in, and I think both of you will have interesting perspectives on this, and we kind of touched on it a little bit, but like, so even publishing a new scientific idea that like conforms to everything else that science is and the, how the ecosystem works. It's just a different idea and different formulation of what might be truth. Um, that seems to be hard already. And now both of you have left academia for different reasons, I'm sure, uh, which you may go into if you want, want to. And now you're both building companies in this space. So now you're both building tools for researchers and trying to change the game with those tools. So I'm curious, and maybe Philip, you can kick us off. Like, what has that experience been like? How, how is innovation from an new tooling perspective, from a new technology perspective, from a new systems perspective? How's that perceived in the ecosystem in your experience? So, I mean, we're, we're really much, much earlier, much, much earlier stage than, uh, than Josh and, uh, and Syed, right? So we basically only got started like one and a half years ago for real. So one, one of the things that I was actually quite surprised about is that uh, there was quite a lot of openness to the ideas that we're having and what we're trying to build. Uh, so there was much, much more support and open-mindedness from, uh, from established institutions, from universities, from, uh, from publishers uh, than what I would have expected. But that doesn't mean that we've succeeded yet, right? So there is a there is a there, there is still a big gap that we need to cross between like ideation and, and uh, finding product market fit and uh, and actually surviving uh, out there. So that's uh, that's the next step, and I, I I will report back to you, Carla, in a year or two. <laughs> <laughs> All right, I'm 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 uh, I can't wait. Um, but yeah, Josh, like see, having seen having already talked about your traction, it seems like you got product market fit, which awesome. Um, how's it been getting there? Yeah, I mean, this is, in essence, my third company in the space, right? So I didn't know anything about starting companies or what it takes to finance this. I was a grad student. You know, I, I knew a lot about research and a lot about science, but it takes a whole different skill set to go out and raise money, right? And, and, you know, you can raise money from grants, which we've done. You can also raise money from, you know, potential investors. And so once you raise that money, you read all these headlines. Oh, now we've raised this. Now we've got it, right? We've got this million dollars. We can go out and build anything. But there's a ton to learn, right? And, and we've made a ton of mistakes. And, you know, the first two companies didn't really work, right? And it's out, about being honest with yourself. It's like, why is this working? Why is this not working? And what can we do to change that? And so we really push people to give us critical feedback on why they don't use site or why they canceled their subscription. 
because that we can act upon. We can't act upon. We love it. But then they, they like secretly don't love it and go away. So why don't they or why didn't they use site? What were the major hurdles to adoption? I mean, I think some of it is just cost, right? And that's, mm -hmm. you know, we listen to that. We've, we used to have three different pricing tiers. One was, you know, $720 a year for like these consultants, which we had some people paying, but the undergraduate student is not going to pay $720 a year. Uh, and so I think <laughs> there's this balance to where the friction of, of charging for something can lead to a lot of insight, right? Uh, is someone going to actually use this and be willing to, to pay for this? Or are they just going to say nice things and say like, uh, it's nice, but I'll go off and do something. Not nice enough. Yeah, exactly. You need some brutal honesty uh, because again, that's really all you can act upon, right? If I say great idea and then I walk away and tell someone else, ah, oh, it's not a great idea. It's not going to work for this. Like I'm not actually really helping that person, right? You know, you're, you're just kind of like making them feel good. But if they're spending all their waking hours, time, you know, money and, and effort on that, I think it's good to be critical. You don't have to be an asshole about it. Like you can be like, hey, I really want you to succeed. Here's why I think it might not and what you can do to address that. And then people think deeply and critically and, and hopefully solve those problems. I mean, in, in economics, we, we have this, uh, this concept of uh, cheap talk, right? So you can say whatever you mean, but you know, an economist is usually not going to, uh, to listen to you or not take it very seriously because you know, you're not backing it up with, with action or with money. Whereas if you do, like if you actually buy something or you act in a certain way, then that's a revealed pre preference. And that's actually what we look out for. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Economists are very strong on only money counts. I have opinions on that. But going back to... <laughs> actually, not money per se, but action, right? Yeah. Action, no, revealed true. preference. Right. But I guess with this, like, and researchers being a, like, just inherently critical kind of person, right? Um, so then maybe, do you feel, I mean, I guess you haven't built companies in different spaces, but do you feel maybe building in the research space might actually be easier getting to product market fit by having a user base that is so critical and might be able to, to the point, tell you why exactly they will never consider using your product? <laughs> no. <laughs> a strong no. <laughs> I think it's very hard to build in this space because... There are so many tradition-bound things. There's not a ton of money. Like researchers are not all making a lot of money, right? They have, you know, limited budgets. They think the university should pay for it. If the university is going to pay for it, similarly, they also have limited budgets and slow sales cycles. Um, and so I think there's, you know, a lot of complex, you know, behaviors amongst researchers that are really hard to navigate. Everyone thinks everything should be free, right? Free and open. And I agree. I wish everything was free and open too. But someone has to pay for something, right? The people behind a nonprofit, a startup, whatever it is, need to somehow pay their bills, right? That's just a simple fact of life. And whether that's through grants, which hopefully they keep getting, or through a sustainable business model, you know, which hopefully is clear and understandable, are, are, are different routes. But I think this space is exceedingly challenging. And I know some founders that have had big success, like in ads, try to come into science because it's a lot more rewarding Uh, and I mean that from like an intellectual and emotional perspective, but have left because they're like, I, I just don't get it, right? They, we've built something. Why aren't researchers doing this? Um, and it's, you know, because the researchers are almost like a, a different breed, uh, if you will. <laughs> That's very true. <laughs> I mean, you can say it. You've, you, you both are, are researchers. There's so. strong self-selection for sure. <laughs> <laughs> That's funny. It's interesting. Okay. Well, thank you for that perspective. Super interesting. Um, that was kind of my intuition too, that like with those uh, strong traditions and the, the, the pattern of like who pays in that field is like very, very hard. So I guess let's maybe transition to our lightning round um, as we're closing up this podcast. So we have a couple questions for you. Quick questions. Philip and I will be asking them in turns. And you may answer with one word or one sentence max. So keep it short. So I'm going to kick us off. If you could have any superpower to help you with your work at site, what would it be? Persistence. I don't even think it's a superpower, but I think it's the most critical. That's very humble. <laughs> And yeah, I, I think you're probably right about that. So in the startup space, I completely agree. So persistence is, uh, is probably one of the most important things that differentiates those that make it from those that don't in the end. Next one. If you could only eat one meal for the rest of your life, what would that be? Burrito. 
Burrito! Yay! Listen, you can have a breakfast burrito, <laughs> you can have a normal burrito. Yeah, that's good. You can put you can put chocolate inside to make it a dessert. That's so versatile. That's I don't so know about smart. the chocolate burrito, but yeah, I mean, I, I, I think bur- I oh, love burritos and, and they're very versatile. Um, yeah. <laughs> okay, cool. Um, if you could switch lives with a character on a TV show, which one would you choose and why? Oh, that's a tough one. Uh, so I would be Hannah Montana, I think. Sounds, looks pretty awesome that life <laughs> i don't i keep wanting to say seinfeld but i don't think his life's particularly like appealing <laughs> to me i mean i guess he's in new york it seems like the most it's not so crazy because i i feel like most characters that i'm watching are 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 interesting to watch because they're not living lifestyles that i'd want to live <laughs> You're so Whereas right. seinfeld is like You're you know so pretty right. normal life and he's going to have coffee and things like that and i i could i could see myself doing that so. <laughs> okay valid Okay, next one. What's your go-to karaoke song? It's this song by this band called Live. And it's, you know, I I didn't actually know what the lyrics were about, but it's about abortion, right? And so it's not a good one. Yeah. Um, I forget the name of the song, but if you look up Live, it's like one of their singles from probably late 90s. uh, And it's... Has for some reason become my go-to karaoke song, and so now I actually want to go to a karaoke bar with you. <laughs> it's, it's an intense one, and you could see like when well, the first couple of times I did it, I I, I was a bit drunk, uh, and I was seeing the lyrics come up on the screen. I was like, "Wow, this is not what I thought this song was about." Uh, so glad so, that I'm drunk. <laughs> it's very intense to be singing publicly at a bar. Yeah. <laughs> Um, like, oh no, some some people are going to get very mad at me right now. Yeah. <laughs> but I guess related to uh, singing, um, if you could form a rock band with any scientist, past or present, who would it be? Uh, Richard Feynman. He's played the bongos and he has a big reason I got into to science. And so I think That's amazing. he'd be really fun to play with. And you can find some YouTube videos of him playing bongos and singing about orange juice and all these things. <laughs> That's that's hilarious. I'm kind of curious now to hear a bongo version of the song. That's your go-to karaoke song. <laughs> yeah, the karaoke song. I don't think it's like controversial. It's just pretty intense emotionally. It's not taking sides on abortion or anything. Oh, like gotcha, this. gotcha. Yeah. I mean, karaoke songs should be very emotional. Like you gotta sing your yeah. soul out. That's that's yeah. the whole point. <laughs> awesome. <laughs> well, thank you so much, Josh. This has been great. Thank you for your insight. We learned a lot. Um, Thank you so much for coming on the Future of Science podcast. Thanks a lot for having me. I I, uh, appreciate all the questions and it's it's flown by. So it was really enjoyable and and hopefully we can do it again. Thanks so much, Josh. This was really great. Thanks for tuning into the Future of Science podcast. We have exciting news. The DSI Foundation has now started accepting donations to support MetaScience. Head to dsifoundation.org slash donate to join the cause. Oh, also feel free to subscribe, rate, review, sign up for a live seminar and all that other good stuff. All important links in the description. See you next time.